As we come again to the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, I'll be reading from Nehemiah in chapter 3. This is the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Spirit brings us to believe, those who listen now would listen in vain. So, Lord, would you do this good work now in us? Build us up. And by your Spirit, would you cause us to believe that we might follow you? In all things, we desire that you would be honored. So we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Nehemiah in chapter 3. I want to take up this morning the whole of the chapter. There's quite a number of verses. We can make it through. Uh, there's lots of names and places mentioned here, so I'm just going to say up front, please forgive my uh, blundering pronunciations on a lot of these things. We'll just do our best uh, to work our way through it. Hang with me here. These things are important. It is the Word of God. Uh, so this is Nehemiah, and chapter 3 will begin in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mesherezabel, repaired. And next to him, uh, next to them Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besoideah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah, and laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzvah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the per perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumapah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malkijer, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. 
Hanun, the inhabitants of Zanoah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the ruler of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kolhoseth, the ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, and next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Keliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half-district of Keilah, and next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Machasiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired uh, beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedadiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired his own house, opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, the and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Whew. This is the word of God. Oh, I need a breath. If you have been here with us in Nehemiah these past couple of weeks as we looked at chapters one and two, this chapter, chapter three now, might strike you as odd or different. Because up to this point, Nehemiah has given us a history in Jerusalem in the form of narrative. 
We've seen a set of events that are all under God's providence as they play out in the world. So we've seen Nehemiah in Persia hear about these broken walls of Jerusalem. We watched him weep and fast and pray for four months. And then he makes some official bold appeal to the Persian kings to get those walls fixed. That's granted, and he travels all the way to Jerusalem through, through various oppositions. He inspects the state of the walls himself, and he gathers all the people of Israel up finally, and he makes the call to them, let's rise up and rebuild the walls. And they do. They start to build the wall again. So here, it's not what's happening that's odd. It makes sense that we're now starting to build the walls. It's the way that it's recorded that's different. There's a clear shift in style. This is not narrative or a sort of story set of these historical events. This is more like a roster, a register of all the wall workers and where they were. And usually, Nehemiah, the guy who wrote the book, he plays a central role in the events. But uh, so as the author of the book, we usually see things through his eyes, from his point of view. It's like a memoir of Nehemiah. But here in chapter 3, we hear Nehemiah mentioned nowhere. There's another guy named Nehemiah, but it's a different guy. Nehemiah doesn't even give us the words I, me, my at all in this chapter because this wall is not his wall. It's our wall. It's their wall. Or more accurately, it's God's wall that we build. So now, the question for us is, what are we supposed to do with something like this? What do we do with this roster list? I'll tell us a few things that we won't do. We're not going to try to map out this wall it's hard enough to try to follow it. There's tons of real landmark places mentioned, dozens of landmarks, and there's 10 specific gates of the Jerusalem wall. Like we get the Tower of the Ovens and, and the Dung Gate. You know, all these things are interesting. I'm very curious how the Dung Gate got its name, but, but we don't have to worry about that. We don't need to pinpoint all of these places. Nor are we going to look at the importance of work in general. We could. The Bible teaches us that work is good. There was work in the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin, and there will continue to be work forever, good work in the new heavens and new earth. Work was made by God as a blessing, not a curse. Work is good, but we're not going to approach that subject today. Today we want to look at the nature of the workers. That is, how this work on the wall actually plays out. And there's a lot here for us to glean. If we look at the full scope of these wall workers, there are a number of things that stand out to us. Let me offer just a few. First, one thing that stands out is the family workers. The importance of family here. Family relations are mentioned all over the place in this chapter. You know, the work on the, on the fish gate is done by the sons of Hasinah. The, the Yeshinah gate is worked on by Shalem and his daughters. 
The fountain gate is worked on by the brothers of the Levites. The basic unit of wall building is built around the work of family groups. Now, this is not the only way it could be done, but this is the way that it is done. And that's interesting for us because many of our family systems are built around things like shared space in our homes. We share a roof. Families are built around maybe shared history or shared experiences, maybe shared time, vacations, dinner, entertainment, however we do that. Those things may be good, but what might it look like to have a great sense of shared work within our families that we wouldn't always have to splinter off into our own isolated separate jobs and projects and errands dad goes here mom goes here kids go here grandma's back here cousins are over here and everybody's kind of in their own little pockets here there is space to come together in a common place for a particular work. There are family workers here. That's the first observation. It's family workers. We also notice the importance of local workers. The people groups that are, that are coming to work on this wall, I'm sure you registered all of them. I can barely pronounce them, and many of them I don't even know who they are. But some of them I, I know, I'm familiar with, I recognize at least the name groups. Some of these people are coming from all around Jerusalem, from the countryside and from the neighboring cities. So we see work on this wall done from uh, men of Jericho come over to help, men of Gibeon come over to help, men of Mitzvah come over to help. So work on the wall is not exclusive just to the residents of Jerusalem, but... Many of these workers are local residents here. The city of Jerusalem is their home. The walls are their walls. So as they start to organize, you know, the people want to build, rebuild this wall around Jerusalem that's been broken down. As they start to organize where and how to start rebuilding the wall, for some of the, the residents, their starting point's just going to be obvious. Multiple times throughout this account, we hear some version of a note that the workers repair opposite his house or opposite his chamber. In other words, some of the workers here could, could literally look out their own window and see parts of the ruined wall. They don't need to go hunting for where they can find places to help. I, well, right there, I can see it. I'm going to work there. And sometimes we get it into our heads as Christians particularly that, that work that's somewhere else is more important work than work here. That work far away is more important than work nearby. That we exalt various forms of foreign work to the detriment of domestic work. Now, to be clear, there are times when God calls people to work somewhere else. That's important. We need to be open to obedient, be obedient to God's call, even to the ends of the earth, if he would call us there. 
but many times when there is a great work to be done, the best place to begin is right in your own backyard. For many of these people, this work was local. That's the second observation. We've seen them now in families. We've seen workers local. The third pattern we see is the diversity of workers. We hear throughout this section mention of all different kinds of workers. There's a, a diversity in vocation. Do you notice that, that a few people's jobs, their craft, was named in attachment to their name? Some of the workers are priests. Some of the workers are merchants. Some of the workers are goldsmiths. And some of the workers are perfumers. Did you catch that one in there? Now, none of those things, priests, merchants, goldsmiths, and perfumers, none of those jobs would be used in the actual building of the wall. You know, it's not like the, the perfumer is walking around spritzing a little Calvin Klein on some of the bricks, you know, to hold it together. Oh, you know, I gotta infuse the gates with notes of myrrh and cinnamon and olive oil. Maybe the dung gate could use it. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, but that's, yeah, that's not what he's doing here, you know. If, so if the jobs are not actually used in the rebuilding process, then, then why does the author even mention them? And the answer to that, I think, is that these jobs are, are named because construction isn't their normal work. You know, a perfumer is not a construction worker, but he's working in construction now anyway. Especially perfumers' hands are probably not cut out for manual labor. They don't have those rugged hands. They have a soft, soft preacher hands. Uh, you can tell that their tools are pins and not big, uh, big hefty tools. Building would not be their strength, their skill, their specialty, but it doesn't matter. They needed help building. And so whoever this perfumer guy is goes, well, I don't know how to do this, but somebody show me how. Somebody give me some order and show me how to put some of this together so that I know what to do to help. There's a diversity in vocation. There's also a diversity in what I'll call elevation. Different statuses are named here. So there's a whole bunch of rulers that are named within this section, but they join in the building anyway. There's even the very first worker on this wall in the whole chapter is the high priest himself. There's only one high priest in the whole nation, and he's the first worker here, which means that, that many of the most important people with the highest elevation in their community were, were now joining to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty to build this wall. This is not a blue-collar, white-collar divide. This is not a the educated managers get to be the boss and the low laborers have to do the real grunt work. No, everybody is involved here. Regardless of any hierarchy about whatever high or low status we might think they have, there's a diversity of elevation. There's also a diversity in location around the wall. The wall of Jerusalem is not being built here for the first time. It was already built long, long ago and now been torn down. It's being rebuilt after it had been ruined by war. 
And so different sections of the wall are going to require different types of support to fix. You know, different the walls are in different sizes and shapes and states of disrepair. You know, in the list, when it comes to the dung gate, good grief of all the gates, I've mentioned that one the most, I guess now. Uh, the dung gate, there's only one guy named as helping with that one, maybe because no one else wanted to help. I don't know. Uh, but but Mal Malkaija is the guy that rebuilds the doors and the bars and the bolts for just that one gate. Whereas at the fountain gate, we get the exact opposite. There are hundreds and hundreds of workers working on that section. It probably just needed a lot more work. At the valley gate, there's a mention of a thousand cubit stretch, which is about the length from, from here uh, to, I think, almost to the lodge. And so there would be people all along that stretch, whereas other sections just all piecemeal around the wall. There's all sorts of diversity in the types of work and workers around this city wall. So that's the third thing we might observe, but the fourth and final, this most important thing we'll notice about the workers. We'll camp here for the rest of our time. Is that these workers have unity. There's a union in these workers. The phrase in this chapter, you probably heard it as I read it, that gets repeated again and again and again, is some form of the phrase next to him or after him, one after another, after another, after another. This isn't just about labor, it's about co-labor, a collaboration. It's not just about workers, it's about co workers. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word co-workers, it's not a pleasant-sounding word, not because I have, bad, have had bad co-workers, but just because co-workers are, you know, people in my mind that just wear the same color vest at a department store. You know, they have to, you're kind of in the same bundle because you got hired by the same people. There's something to that, but here, this co-work, these co-workers have a real shared purpose. This is an actual community effort to rebuild. And the whole point of the chapter, I think, is to show their unity in this work. If you think about it, this chapter isn't strictly necessary if Nehemiah is writing about these events in history, chapter 3 isn't really necessary to the flow of the narrative events. He could have just, Nehemiah could have just attached the, the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 4 with one sentence. Then we started building the wall. That's what's happening here, right? But instead of just saying it succinctly that way, he does the exact opposite and itemizes all these meticulous details about the, the, the building. He spells out all the different gates, the different people, all the different group by group, gate by gate, person by person. He starts at the sheep gate, and then he starts to trace his way all the way around the wall with all the workers, and then ends up back at the sheep gate to show these links in the chain 
so that we can kind of picture, even if we can't imagine it, kind of visualize as best we can all of these folks around the wall, shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, working together on this one wall. And that is a picture of what God has made the church to be. We are all many members, but we are part of one body in Jesus. That's what the scripture teaches consistently. There's an extended discussion of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I won't read it all. You can read that on your own time. But I will read just a part of it. Paul says this. Um, let me see. I'll pick up in verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now because we are individual members, that means there's going to be some diversity, some difference in our work. We are not identical. It's good that there's diversity, diversity of vocation and elevation and location and all the things. Scripture even talks about a great diversity of gifts within the church that not everyone has. Some people are given to be teachers, to be helpers, to be healers, to be administrators. There's a whole big list of those sorts of things, which means, for example, that my work as a pastor is in my work in the church as a pastor is going to be different in some ways than your work in the church. So up close, you clearly would be able to see the various differences. But if you zoom out, you would see that our work, all of us, is far more similar than it is different. Because we are all working together as one body. And it's a similar sort of thing with the wall. If we actually were to look at the process of this wall building in the, in the 400s B.C., in Nehemiah's day, if we actually looked at that process, surely you would see people doing all sorts of different things. Some people are mixing mortar. Some people are forming bricks. Some people are, are positioning levels to make sure everything's straight. Some people are hammering things into place. Some people are carrying beams. Some people are cutting them to size. Some people are setting and measuring the door. Some people are anchoring the bolts. Everybody's doing different things. But, it, but if you watch it happening from a distance, if you got far enough back, what we, you would just see is a bunch of builders. Men and women working along this wall. They are all builders, and that is true of you too. You are a builder. And what we are building isn't a city wall. What we are building is the body of Christ. Paul writes about this again in the letter to the Ephesians. 
verse uh, 4. He writes this starting in verse 11. And he, this is Jesus, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that is all believers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ is done by the saints, by the whole company of believers. So when we say in our church, all members ministers, we really mean that. We are all ministers. It's not just me, it's all of us. Now that leads some people to ask the question, how? You know, how do I, how, how do, I do this? What does that actually look like to be, to be a co-worker in building up the body of Christ? It's a good question. Sometimes uh, building is more tangible. You know, for Nehemiah, the building he's working on is very clear. There's a clear mission. We've got a wall, and there's clear jobs that go around all of that. That's good. Sometimes even churches have clearer ministries, things like food pantries or homeless shelters or grief circles or parent support networks. There's an endless string of these. And if you or we were part of some formal ministries like that, that would be good, of course. But most of the time, our building work is intangible, is undefined, and that work is good too. If you're not sure how to engage as a co-worker in building up the body of Christ, you could join some sort of formal ministry, a ministry with a fixed name and mission. You could do that. That would be good, but you don't have to. In fact, it might even be better if you're looking to join in this work to pause and pray and then just keep your eyes open for the needs that are already in your backyard. That's building work. That is co-labor work in Christ. And even though the various work, of course, is going to vary from person to person, we can still do that work arm in arm. Because through, through all of these things, we know that these various forms of ministry, all these different types of ministry, are not building different walls. These ministries are different bricks in the same wall. They're part of one wall, which is the glory of God in the body of Jesus. So by God's grace, we want to be part of that. Don't you want to be part of one that would put the metaphorical brick in the wall? So come, you know, let's join together in God's good work, whatever that might look like. Let's rise up and build. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that you are the ultimate builder of all things, that without your grace, your wisdom, your strength, we could not build. So, Lord, would you grant us wisdom? Would you strengthen our hands, and would you make us one? 
Help us to seek your glory as we build with one body. Your work in us is good, and we give you praise for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.